This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Raviputi. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is being brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is award-winning case management software used to manage personal injury, medical malpractice, MDL, class action law firms all over the United States. Great program, highly recommend it. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. Today's episode is being brought to you by Expert Institute. Expert Institute is the place to go for everything involving experts to help you win your case. Check them out at expertinstitute.com. And today's episode is being brought to you by Hype Legal. Hype Legal is a one-stop shop for all of your digital marketing needs. Check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Rahul Ravipudi. And I'm Ben Gideon. So Rahul, we were supposed to record this a couple of days ago, but it uh, didn't work out. And now we're recording now. I had a special uh, treat for you for the date we were going to record, which is that I brought my dog Jacoby to the office and I was going to include him on the show because last time we recorded with Jody and Susan, we got some feedback that we seem to always start off our show talking about football. And it never occurred to me that perhaps some members of the audience aren't that into football, but I figured everyone's into puppies, right? I think everybody's into puppies. I don't know if everybody's into cats, though. Do you know if everybody's into cats? In my experience, uh, there's a sharp divide on cats. <laughs> we actually had a cat up until about a couple months ago, and um, the cat had taken to peeing in my closet, which I oh. found to be very uh, offensive and off-putting. In fact, the cat hasn't peed in the closet now for a, a while, but I can still smell the pee, even though there is no smell, but I just, my brain recreates the smell of cat pee, which is one of the most vile smells you can imagine. <laughs> so we actually, after the cat was doing that for a while, we offered to give the cat to a friend of mine, my friend Edward. And he has a little girl who loved the cat. When she came over, she was always playing with the cat and seemed to really love it. So we said, why don't you, you know, guys take our cat and you can have her. And um, I didn't disclose the cat pee in the closet issue. Um, <laughs> hopefully, Edward doesn't listen to this podcast. But now Edward is the proud owner of our cat, Lulu, so we don't have to deal with that issue anymore. That is funny. What's your position on cats? Do you have any cats, uh, any pets at all? Yeah, we have two dogs, uh, two golden doodles. Our oldest son, Dylan, he's allergic to cats. So we had a cat up until... He was about five years old, and we realized he was allergic to our cat, Maya, which Smitha got before we got married. And I'm not a huge cat fan. I don't think I have a true aversion, but I wasn't sad when Maya was no longer part of our house old. But I have a the similar story to you, Ben. So when Smitha and I were dating, I kept some personal stuff, suits and socks and underwear in her office or in her room in her apartment. And I kept my socks in a little shoebox on the floor. And lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, Maya pees in my shoebox full of my socks. And so I go to the office for multiple days in the afternoon. My whole body smelled like piss. And I was smelling my armpits. I was smelling my, I just couldn't understand it. And so then the next day happened and the same thing happened. And I was mortified. Like I just sit in my office because I didn't understand, like, is it coming out of my pores? So then I finally get to the bottom of the shoebox full of socks and I see like a urine stain on there. And it all started to make sense that it was my socks that, finally permeated in the afternoon to the rest of my body and made me feel self-conscious. Well, I think we've successfully begun the show now without talking about football. I think after these <laughs> stories, people are going to 
suggest that we go back to making small talk about football. <laughs> <That's probably true. laughs> so I wanted to move now into what we're here to talk about, which is you recently, I believe in March, got an incredible verdict, over $46 million in a case that you tried in San Diego, right? Yeah. So can you kind of set the scene for it? Tell us what this case is about and a little bit about the lead up to trial and, and the venue there where you were trying this case. Sure. So our client, his name's Jack Greener. And back in 2018, he was a student at San Diego State University where he was studying to really start a business in eco-culture and surf communities. He was a semi-professional surfer and already had a job set up for him in Costa Rica at a surf destination to be a professional surfer and, and trainer down there. So he was just three weeks away from graduating and following and pursuing that dream. And as part of the surf community in San Diego, and he went down to Nicaragua, he got exposed to Brazilian jiu-jitsu maybe a few years before the incident and intermittently took classes and intermittently competed. And so he was a white belt, one stripe white belt. You can get up to four stripes in as a white belt before you can go to the next level of becoming a blue belt. So truly a novice. And so he ended up going to this local club, Del Mar Jiu-Jitsu Club, for an open mat session in May of 2018, signed a waiver then. And then as he was working out at the gym one day, he tore his pec muscle. And so he didn't do anything for about five months. Flash forward to November 2018, he starts taking some classes at Del Mar Jiu-Jitsu Club. And on his fifth class, uh, this is November 29th, 2018, his instructor is a black belt, Francisco Iteralde, goes by the nickname Sinistro. And he goes through the whole class, they learn a technique, and then they all spar together. And at the end of the class, Jack got to spar with Mr. Iteralde. And Mr. Iteralde, while Jack was in what's called the turtle position, kind of on all fours, crouched down, Mr. Iteralde gets behind him and does a very unusual technique and an aggressive one, which breaks Jack's neck rendering him an incomplete quadriplegic. And Jack is an amazing young man. He's sitting there fully paralyzed from the neck down and he's at the ER and he, he goes, Hey dad, can you please record something for me? And his dad records him and he posts it on Instagram. He says, Hey everyone, my neck just got broken and I can't move right now, but don't worry. I'm going to get up and I'm going to be back and walking again soon. So he lays there in the hospital, ends up having um, multiple strokes and um, from the trauma that, thank goodness, the doctors were there and saved his life. And then he slowly regained a little bit of motion. And with that little bit of motion came hope that it wasn't a fully severed spinal cord and that there may be a chance of regaining something. And he goes and gets transferred to Craig Rehab Facility in Colorado, where he undergoes the most intense rehab ever. And while he's doing that, he slowly regains motion, slowly learns to kind of walk again. And it's a miracle. It's fantastic. Is he okay? Absolutely not. He's got very little core muscle strength. He had, walks with that scissored gait where, you know, it's just kind of a little Frankenstein-like. He's got dropped foot in both feet. He's incontinent in both bowel and bladder. He needs to use a suppository to excrete every morning. He's got no sensation below his nipples. And, you know, he has to do therapy for about four hours a day just to avoid any muscle atrophy. But he wanted to, for his own mental health and to help others, because when something like this happens to a young man, 23-year-old kid, all the things go through his mind, massive depression and anxiety and suicidal ideations. 
And one of the ways he tried to cope with that was to try to inspire others that everything's going to be okay. And so he committed to himself that he was going to climb Mount Whitney and he did it. And there's a documentary about it. And he had a big team with him, his nurses and made it up that climbed up. It took him so many hours and days, but he did it. And that made him somewhat of a sensation and a role model in the paralyzed community. And now he's a mentor to a number of kids who suffered traumatic injuries, and they are so grateful to him for giving them hope that their lives are not completely over. So that's Jack, and that's what happened to him. So in this case, the lawsuit was brought against the Del Mar Jiu-Jitsu Club and the instructor, Mr. Iteralde, for negligence in injuring him. And the law here in California is that you have assumption of risk issues. One of the assumption of risk issues is it, there's a potential for that waiver he signed. And if the waiver is enforceable, then you have to prove gross negligence, which is an extreme departure from ordinary care. That's the standard here in California. And if the waiver does not apply um, and is not enforceable, then the law in California is we need to prove that the instructor unreasonably increase the risk inherent in the activity. That's the standard that we had to go under in trying this case down in San Diego. So can I just go back to the beginning? Yeah. One of the questions I've had about this case was, what is the um, the defendant like? Are, they, are we talking about like a, a large company that uh, has multiple locations or is this sort of a mom and pop kind of operation or what, what kind of a jiu-jitsu business is this? This is a single location jujitsu club. So you'll ultimately end up with a, an excess claim against the insurer here. Yeah. Boy, that doesn't seem like very smart decision-making on their part. I don't disagree. What's the, the other thing that would jump off the page with a case like this that I'm sure everybody, lawyers would want to know is how do you deal with the assumption of risk issue? Because this is uh, potentially hazardous occupation or sport of doing mixed martial arts. And I'm sure everybody who goes into that recognizes you can get hurt doing it. Then there is that exculpatory release that you signed. So how did you navigate those types of thorny issues here? So the first thing on waivers, and I think this applies everywhere across the country, is that a waiver is really an adhesion contract. And so any interpretation of a waiver is interpreted against the drafter. And just to kind of take a step back away from this case for a moment and just on uh, contractual waivers in general, usually it's the insurance company that puts in their terms and conditions that, hey, if you're running this business, you gotta have a waiver. But the carriers don't necessarily give their insureds any waivers, even though they know the scope of the work that that insured is doing. So what does that mean? That means this small business or business owner needs to figure this out on their own. And normally what they do is they go online and they'll print something out from somewhere. And invariably, those waivers are inapplicable for a host of reasons. One, it may just be the wrong language. It may have the wrong scope of uh, applicability. It may have the wrong time periods. And it may not even cover the people that are intended or wanted to be covered under the waiver or under the business. So when left to their own devices, what I've seen is that incompetently drafted waivers and inapplicable waivers are always in play. So now bringing it back into this case, that's exactly what happened here. The owner of the jiu-jitsu club went on to Google, downloaded some sort of document, and in May of 2018 had Jack Greener sign it. Now that document was actually intended for children and for parents to sign off on their children. And that's a problem in and of itself because when it's interpreted against the drafter, 
it's interpreted as being really unenforceable for an adult to sign that document. Second thing is that waiver was a single event waiver, and meaning that, hey, Jack came in that day in May for a open mat session. Assuming it was enforceable, which it's not, it would have only been enforceable for that day and not for any subsequent returns for taking jujitsu classes there. And then the last thing was for this particular issue, in this case, the way the jujitsu club was set up is each of the instructors were not employees of the club. They were independent contractors. And so independent contractors or contractors were not a released party under this waiver. And so for three separate reasons, we were able to establish that the waiver was unenforceable. And the defense agreed that the waiver was clear and unambiguous. So now it's a question for the judge to interpret the document and just make that decision. And the court found for all three reasons that the waiver was unenforceable in this case. And the fact that they were independent contractors, did that affect uh, the liability in terms of vicarious or they were insureds anyway, so you didn't have to worry about that? Both. He was an insured and the defense stipulated to vicarious liability. Because he was an agent. Yeah. Yeah. An agent or acting on behalf of, but for the purposes of contract interpretation, he was an independent contractor. So that solves the legal problem with the release, but what about the issue of assumption of risk from a jury standpoint? How did you deal with that? That's a great question. So assumption of risk and that whole concept of going and doing some sort of activity that involves risk, it's really permeated the jury pool. And people come in with their beliefs on that issue and they usually have very strong feelings or no feelings at all. <laughs> and the strong feelings usually come in a version like this. If you go and do martial arts, bad things can happen, just like if you skydive or, you know, do other sorts of risky activities. And I assume that there's a waiver because everybody makes you sign waivers. And so you shouldn't even have any rights anyways to come into a court. And even if you did, it doesn't seem like you should, because when something bad happens, even if it's somebody else's fault, don't you assume that's going to happen when you do a risky activity like this? So this falls squarely into the issues of things we talk about before, Ben, going through voir dire and jury selection and, and um, making sure to identify those jurors who just cannot be impartial or fair in this case. And as we went through that exercise and the questions that I would ask the panel is like, hey, who here feels that if you make a choice to go do an activity that has some risk in it, that even if somebody else harms you during that activity, it's kind of on you. You chose to, to do that activity. And a lot of hands went up. And remarkably, a lot of jurors had Brazilian jiu-jitsu experience, and some of them would fall into two camps. One camp was jiu-jitsu is just like every other martial arts, and bad things can happen at any time, and, you know, it's on him. And the other camp is jiu-jitsu is called the gentle art, and I think it's actually a safe activity. And... um I don't really have any opinions one way or the other after that. So I just want to hear what this case is about and I'll decide it on, on the merits. And so as we were going through the voir dire, like probably over 20 jurors uh, expressed these types of assumption of risk issues and then got excused for cause. And then everybody else that was left were at least willing to hear it or didn't tell me that they had these assumption of risk concerns and, um, had already decided that I wasn't going to win the case. What was your, if you want to call it a case frame or theme, what were you saying, you know, they did wrong and how did you frame that issue for the jury? So the framing of the issue was as follows, explaining what the standard of care is and the interaction between a black belt instructor and a white belt student. 
we're not talking about Brazilian jiu-jitsu as a whole, tournaments, uh, you know, black belt on black belt or anything like that. In a Brazilian jiu-jitsu class where you have a black belt instructor interacting with a white belt student, that black belt instructor has a responsibility for the safety of that student. And they need to be thoughtful because they're at such a high skill level and they need to recognize that they're interacting with somebody who is very inexperienced. And in doing so, what they want to do is teach white belt students techniques that they can actually safely implement on their own. God forbid you teach a white belt who is invariably going to make mistakes, techniques where when they're done wrong, they're going to break somebody's neck or kill them. So you want to teach techniques which white belts are capable of executing without killing somebody, right? And then what you want to do is recognize that a white belt student, unlike other students, may not have total control over their own bodies. So as you're deciding what techniques you want to employ on a white belt student, then you've got to make sure the higher the risk of injury, the more control you as the black belt instructor need to be able to have over the movements of that white belt student. And started talking about risk in that way, right? What is risk? Risk is, it has factors to it. And we started talking about the factors. The difficulty in competently and successfully executing the technique without error. The harm associated with failing to the recipient when you actually unsuccessfully execute that and going through the skill level that's needed. And so when you kind of factor in those risks, you okay, as a black belt instructor, maybe I shouldn't be teaching this technique. Maybe I shouldn't be executing this technique. And then the last thing is, as a black belt instructor, this is not a competition. This isn't a win or lose situation. These are teaching moments in a much more dialed down environment of a jujitsu class. So make sure you have control over yourself. And if you don't have control over yourself, don't do the technique. It's really that simple, right? And so those were the sort of four things that I explained that a black belt instructor needs to do to be safe in interacting with a student. And he did none of those things. Mr. Itteralde treated Jack Greener as if he was some sort of super experienced person, even though he was a white belt, decides to execute a technique which he recognized has a risk of spinal cord injury or death if done incorrectly. And then admitted he didn't have control of Mr. Greener, particularly his head and neck, at the time of executing the technique, and then admitted that he lost control of himself. So in framing the issue the way we did, we framed it in a way where we could prove and did prove that he unreasonably increased the risk inherent in the activity by doing what he did. How did you recreate the sequence of events in the uh, maneuvers that led to the injury? Was there any video of that or do you have any other witnesses to it? There was a video. So there was a video of the injury causing event that we were able to use. And I think it was critical to have that video because my client didn't see what was happening to him. His head was pointed towards the floor. So without the video, I could imagine false narratives coming out during depositions as to what the instructor actually did and how any, anybody and everybody was positioned. There were other witnesses there who watched the video because one of the defenses was, I do this technique all the time. I do it all the time to everybody every day, seven-year-old kids, 70-year-old men, everybody in between, nobody's ever gotten hurt. And so as we showed the video to different witnesses who take classes there, everybody unanimously said, I've never seen that done before. And I don't even know how I could do that. That's way too physical of a move for me to even accomplish. Yeah. And without the video, what are the odds that Iteralde would have acknowledged violating the various rules you just laid out? 
Zero. What was he like? You crossed him in a courtroom. And what was your strategy for how you were going to cross this person? There must have been a fair amount of preparation and thought that went into that. There was a lot of thought and a lot of practice with my co-counsel, Sean Morris, Paul Trena, and others in the firm and, and in Sean's firm. But really, the exercise started with framing those four issues that we were just talking about and making sure that A, it was something that every expert and every black belt would subscribe to. And, you know, it's not something that's being made out of a whole cloth, but is really universal truths. And so as we set the standard of care up, then the evidence was already baked in that the instructor fell below that standard of care. So after I finished my opening statement, the defense did their opening statement. And interestingly enough, the defense lawyer said, hey, you know, how Mr. Ravi Pudi had put up those four boxes with, you know, you got to be safe and you got to have control over yourself and not lose control over the student. Mr. Adoralde, he's going to check all those boxes, obviously. Right. So when I started my cross-examination, I was like, hey, you're here for opening statement. You heard your lawyer. He said, you're going to check all the boxes, so let's do it. And we went through it. I said, so you agree that you need to assess risk and minimize risk in uh, teaching a white belt student? Yes. And you agree that if you don't minimize the risk that you're putting needlessly putting your, your student in danger? And we kind of walked through it all and then said, you got to factor this in. You got to plan. You made a choice to be an instructor. And because you chose to be an instructor, you chose to undertake those responsibilities. That's true. And those responsibilities mean looking out for your students and making sure you have total control over them, especially when you're doing techniques which run the risk of spinal cord injury or death. Yeah. And if you lose control over your student while doing a technique like that, you're putting them in danger. That's unreasonable. That's unnecessary and every appropriate adjective extracting that from them. And I was able to get that standard of care out of them for all those four boxes without any resistance. Then when we're going through what actually happened, I started walking through the video with him, knowing I had his videotaped deposition as well, where he made certain concessions and got him to admit that he did lose control of Jack and had no control of his head and neck. And he just agreed on that because it's the truth. And then ultimately that he lost control of himself, which he agreed on and that that was the cause of Jack's injuries. So that all happened within probably the first hour of cross-examining him. And then I didn't have much longer with him, but the day ended and I finished up the next morning. So the, the trial in total went on for about almost a month, right? It did. I'd say it was about 18 days of voir dire, opening statements, testimony and evidence to verdict. And why trial goes so long? Is it mostly experts or who are the other witnesses? Yeah, it's, so there were about 20-something witnesses. I think we went uh, to, on voir dire for three or four days. So it just took time to go through. We had multiple panels that we had to sift through, especially since it was a longer trial. So there were a number of people who couldn't sit for a long trial, even though they were time qualified before coming into the courtroom. So once we were able to combine that panel into getting about 65 or so hardship qualified jurors, then engaging in the entire voir dire process and sifting through and getting those cause challenges for biased jurors. It took us till the end of the week. And then on witnesses, we had the instructor, the owner, expert witnesses. So probably about six witnesses on liability. And then the rest was all medical witnesses and, and percipient witnesses, friends and family, Jack Greener himself. You had neurosurgeons, physiatrists, pain management doctors, economists, life care planners, things like that. We'd like to thank the sponsors of the Elevate podcast, Steno. 
national court reporting service that allows trial lawyers to defer the costs of court reporting until the end of the case. Take a look. Steno.com. And by LawPods. LawPods is the podcast production company that we use to produce the show that produces uh, podcasts for lawyers all over the country. They have an expertise in podcasting and the law. Check them out at lawpods.com. I know in plaintiff's uh, cases, there's always an effort to broaden the conduct of the defendant beyond just a single event to make it more of a of a systemic issue or a failure to train or repeat bad conduct. Did you have evidence in this case that that went beyond that this one instructor uh, misbehaved during this one event? What kind of the lead up to that? We did. So there was evidence that we had that other students had been injured by this instructor and other students. uh, There was one mom who came. It was her first day of class ever in her life. And Mr. Adiralde broke her rib. And there were other prior incidents. And you were able to get that in? We could have gotten that in, but we actually chose not to. So as the evidence came in, and it came in so strong from our side that we made a decision to to just keep it simple, just kind of keep our head going forward and marshalling through the evidence to to get to the finish line, as opposed to trying to create side stories and other things that sometimes you may want to do, but we were able to sort of narrow the scope in this case enough and keep the relevant, only the relevant evidence coming in that we just didn't feel the need to do that. Was there any kind of subtext of a motive? Maybe he, his personality was a a type that he would want to flex his muscle or, or try to show his dominance over newer students or just some reason why he did what he did beyond just kind of negligence or gross negligence? Interestingly enough, I think there were subtexts. One, I mean, his nickname is Sinistro. I thought the judge wouldn't really let me get that in as to what his nickname was, even though it was on every website and what it meant. But I really wanted to get it in, not for like, the Bush League move of saying, hey, your nickname's Sinistro, you must be evil, right? But what I thought was interesting was in this case, there were a number of motions, motions for summary judgment brought on both sides. And Francisco Iteralde submitted declarations. And in one of the declarations, or two of them, he said, my nickname is Siniestro, with an E in there which means in Italian, left-handed, because I'm left-handed, right? But on the website and on the back of his gi, it's spelled S-I-N-I-S-T-R-O, Sinistro. And on his website, he says Sinistro is Portuguese for sinister, right? And that's my nickname. So I just wanted to bring it out that he's trying to sort of push a false narrative in this court, I mean, why lie about what your nickname is? It's your nickname, right? Your nickname could be called evil for all anybody cares. That doesn't mean you're evil. But he wanted to lie about what his nickname was because he knew he wanted to put a, a false light on himself coming into this court. But I didn't get the chance to even get that far because as I was trying to put the declaration up, it got shut down. I think there is a subtext and there may have been an impression that he was showboating. So Jack Rainer's six foot three San Diego state professional surfer and Mr. Iteralde, I think is around six or six one and was 27 or 28 at the time. It just looks to me on the video like he was showboating. However, we made a choice in this case that With this jury down there in San Diego, they seem like a very diligent, serious group, Uh, a group that wanted to just hear the evidence, know what the law was, and make a decision. 
And so we made a choice that we were not going to inject any of our opinions into the case as to doesn't it look like he's showboating? Aren't you showboating right there or anything like that? And let the jury draw those conclusions on their own. Did you focus group the video? We did. We did multiple focus groups, big data. And what was the reaction to the video when people saw it? I mean, everybody's reaction is when you see it, especially when you watch it in slow motion. I mean, it's, it's gut wrenching. You can just see the moment where Jack's neck is broken and it's tough to watch. But I think that what ends up happening is the same thing that happened in Voidir is that uh, prospective jurors go on party lines. Doesn't matter how egregious the conduct looks in a video. If you think that you go to take a class like that, you assume the risk, you know, they look at it and they go, that sucks, but this is a case that should not be brought. And everybody who doesn't come with that closed mind and just says, let me look at the video and let me understand what the rules are in this case, find it to be um, something that should not have happened and was the fault of the instructor. So you were pretty successful at uh, eliminating jurors who came with that pre-existing belief about uh, assumption of risk. Well, successful enough. It was still a 9-3 verdict on the first question of did the instructor unreasonably increase the risk, despite the instructor effectively admitting liability on the stand. Three people reached the conclusion that accidents happen. You know, it's like you just assume the risk when you go do this activity. And I needed to at least change those dynamics enough so I could get 75% of the jurors on my side. What did you ask for in damages and what did you know about numbers going into trial in terms of how to formulate your, uh, your ask? Through the focus groups and through what we've done in our prior cases, we sort of brainstormed and thought about it a lot. We're really case specific in understanding Jack and how he presented and how the medical evidence was going to come in on the specials, the medical expenses. There was a stipulation as to the past medical expenses, which were a little over $1.3 million. So we didn't have to put any evidence on of that. He was young. So there was a loss of earning capacity claim. And that was stipulated about six hundred and fifty or $670,000. So really the two issues in the case were future medical expenses and then the pain, suffering, emotional distress, mental anguish, those non-economic damages. For the medical expenses in the future, we presented evidence of about $9.6 million in future medical care relating to attendant care, pain management, future surgeries, et cetera. The defense put on a life care planner and their medical experts and offered a different range of future medical care. It's a little bit confusing, but I think it was somewhere between 600000 and $3 million is their recommendation. And then on the non-economic damages, we walked through all of the evidence with the jury and we broke it down because the law in California is that the jury must award compensation for each item of harm. So we laid out the past physical pain and the future physical pain over the rest of his life, the past mental suffering and the future mental suffering, the past emotional distress and the future mental uh, emotional distress and for each of those elements and walked through what we believed was a fair and appropriate number for each of those, which came up to, I think, about high 50s or $60 million. So in total, we sought about $70 million, and the defense suggested $3 million at the top end for specials and recommended a $1 million for past and future pain and suffering. And then the jury came back and with about 30 or $40 million in uh, 30-something million in pain and suffering for past and future, and then $8.5 million for the future medical expenses. Do you think the defense ever saw this 
verdict coming? I mean, did, as trial went on, uh, did they attempt to offer you money or do something to prevent this outcome or, or did they not see it coming, do you think? They did. So they infrequently would say, hey, do you want to discuss a high-low? And with the highs being in the very, very low eight-figure range, but the low being a couple million dollars. And none of those discussions really got much further than that because if it was a 210 high-low, that wasn't agreeable to our side. So I told them to go back to the drawing board and actually propose something rather than just spitballing with me. And they never get themselves into a position to actually offer or make any suggestions other than that. And then when the jury came back with the question of, you know, some of the jury questions while they were deliberating, one of them asked about the life care plans, which you never know exactly what's going on in the jury room, but that's certainly an indication that they got past the liability questions. And then uh, all the discussions just ended at that point. How much insurance was on the underlying policy? It was a million dollars. It was demanded appropriately, and the defense was, we're going to win a trial. So there's no issues on whether it's an open policy case, especially here in California. And really, the only issue now is whether the defendants want to appeal. And if not, the carrier is going to be on the hook for everything. Either way, they are. That's fantastic. So the interesting thing on this case, Ben, is after the verdict, apparently the Brazilian jiu-jitsu community went up in arms. And so you had across the country and through social media and <laughs> all sorts of different platforms, people are like, this is going to shut down every single BJJ club in the country. And, you know, now we're all going to be on the hook when we break people's necks and things like that. And it was just that hysteria. And then what ended up happening is, and it was almost beautiful to see because it's that natural psychology that as a person that's engaged in the activity, especially as an operator, that's where their minds immediately went, which is how is this going to impact me, right? And then as everybody started discussing the case and acting as their own juror in the case or couch surfing on everything and, and trying to analyze the issues, it evolved. And it evolved into Brazilian jiu-jitsu has grown so much and so fast. Everybody's doing it. It's a wonderful activity and it is something that's actually safe for everybody to do and to everybody to engage in. And it should be. And so then all of these people in the community started discussing it and realizing, we've gotten so big, why don't we have any, you know, systemized safety policies, procedures, or standards? Isn't that something we should be looking at for the benefit of our students and for their safety so that there can be at least some minimum level of consistency and safety across the board. And seeing that happen in a community that hasn't had to deal with this issue and to see how they actually ultimately reached the right conclusion as a community, which is we actually do have to take steps for the safety of our students and our consumers was nice to see, actually. Yeah, it really isn't interesting uh, reflection of human psychology and how people react to something like this. I was going to say, I mean, angering the entire worldwide Brazilian jiu-jitsu community might not be in your own self-interest, but uh, I'm glad it's, it's going to work out okay. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they'll even uh, appreciate you shining a light on this because it'll make the industry safer and better and more successful because when people recognize their standards and it can be done safely and they care about that, more people will do it. Totally. And that's actually our expert, Henner Gracie. That was the only reason he agreed to testify in this case. Because when we initially asked him and said, hey, will you be an expert and um, offer opinions in this case? He said, no, nope. I don't want to, you know, the Gracie family, we, we are the founders of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. 
and I'm not going to do something that could actually harm the uh, jujitsu community. And it, this may harm it. And then he saw the video and then he called back and said, I'm in because something like this happening in classes, if it's validated and that's permitted, that's going to harm the Brazilian jiu-jitsu community more than anything. So we need to make sure there's awareness out there. And that's something that I'm on board with doing by testifying in this case. And actually, that was sort of the start of the blowback was the community, you know, was attacking Henner and saying, hey, you're a sellout. And this guy's no shrinking violet. So he goes, hey, let's talk about it. And as he talked about it with anybody who actually would have a conversation with them about it, they realized he was right. Hmm. That was a major coup to get the member of the founding family of the jiu-jitsu community to testify as your expert. How did he do? He was amazing. I will say that I had never had more fun in trial than in this case. And part of the reason was getting to direct examine Henry Gracie. He came into the courtroom. He's got a very great presence. He's never testified in court ever in his life. He brought his, his mats with him. And as he testified about uh, what went wrong and why Jack was injured and how, why he shouldn't have been injured, we then got on the mats and he started explaining to the jury exactly what can be done, all the alternative ways to safely accomplish what he believed the instructor was trying to accomplish. And then using me as the guinea pig sort of put me in the position and without actually doing the technique, but putting me in the position of it and explaining to the jury how when you locked my arm up, so I'm really a tripod with just my knees and my elbow on the ground, my head's about an inch or two from the ground. And if I'm going to launch forward on that, the only thing that's going to happen is my neck's going to get broken. And as he was explaining this to the jury and that using me as demonstrative evidence, I thought it was really a fun way to learn and uh, to kind of crystallize what the jury had already heard from Mr. Eduralde as to why what he did was dangerous and uh, was the cause of the harm. This just kind of put it up in a, and wrapped it up in a nice little bow. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine how powerful that would have been. Just having you explain it, you cringe hearing it, and there's an impact to you at a visceral level. So I can see why that would, be, would have been so effective. One of the things, though, also with Henner, and this is been, as you know, sometimes we have so many disadvantages being the plaintiff in having the burden of proof and all of the effort we need to go into in preparing our case, not just the evidence, but, you know, the framing of it. But when it is actually a, a well-executed plan, you get to watch some of the outcome of it. And so after I finished my direct exam of Henner, the defense counsel gets up and he's taking his shoes off, he's taking his jacket off, and he wants to get on the mat with Henner, right? And Henner's like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be fun. What are we going to do? Do you want to do this move? Do you want to do that move? And it was actually an entertaining back and forth for a moment. But then the defense lawyer adopted all of my case framing. And he goes, hey, you know, Mr. Ravi Pudi, when he was asking you questions and you were offering opinions, you were talking about increasing the risk, increasing the risk. This increases the risk. I want to talk about minimizing the risk. Would you agree that Mr. Iteralde minimized some risk to Mr. Greener at that moment? And which made me so happy because I liked him using the word minimizing the risk and that being a responsibility of the instructor. But then Henner goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he goes, well, you're saying that he locked up his arm, his left arm. Didn't he take away any risk of an arm injury? when doing so and henner goes at the expense of his neck i'm not understanding right and so uh, for the first 15 minutes of this cross-examination 
the defense counsel finally got Henner to agree on the very focused question that there was, he minimized the risk to his left arm from being injured from doing what he did to Jack Greener. And that's not the best way to cross-examine somebody. It was so entertaining, actually, for me to watch and go, okay, he's making no mileage with this guy because there was no mileage to be gained. I feel like that's a a great story to tell at a seminar on what not to do on (laughs) cross-examination. I mean, the traditional wisdom is you don't ask a question that you don't already know the answer to or a pretty good idea that any answer given isn't going to hurt you. But getting on the mat with a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and not knowing what you're going to do, that strikes me as uh, reckless at an even higher level in terms of uh, cross-examination. Totally. But now uh, they actually had a Gracie also. So they had Clark Gracie as their defense expert. And he was the last witness in the trial. And when I crossed him, I asked him a question. I said, hey, did you talk to your lawyers about doing the technique and demonstrating the technique Mr. Iteralde did on Jack Greener here in this courtroom? And he goes, I did. And you guys decided not to do that. And then he looked at me. He goes, I'll do it on you right now if you want. I was like, no, thanks, man. I'm good. <laughs> right? And, wow. then, uh, and then, you know, the defense lawyer got up and it's going to come as no surprise. He did not ask Clark Gracie to do that allegedly safe technique on him in front of the jury because it just wasn't safe. And that's how it ended. Well, it's a, a fascinating trial, and thanks for sharing it with us and, and all the listeners, and uh, congratulations on the result. Sounds like you have an incredibly deserving client, and I uh, feel so happy for him for getting this result. He's already done amazing things in his life in terms of his recovery and uh, inspiring others, and this will just help him continue on with that. So congrats. No, thanks, Ben. Thank you. It's what it's all about. It totally is. And it just is a blessing that we get to do this and help people. And I love my job. And I know you love yours. And everybody else who does this for a living does as well. And I'm hoping for the best for Jack. He's a great guy. And I'm glad that I got to play a role in this case. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E dot net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.